This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hi, Calvary. So glad you could join us today. My name's Perry. I'm on staff at the Boulder campus as the director of adult ministries. You've heard the question, what keeps you up at night? I want to ask you a slightly different one. What wakes you up at night? Not long after my family and I had moved to Longmont, we were awoken in the middle of the night. You might think of what it could have been, maybe a startling noise. Maybe we were uncomfortable in our beds, too hot or too cold. Maybe you have a terrible dream that wakes you up. Well, in our case, we were woken up, kind of nudged awake after all, by a smell. It, it was just this annoying smell. I had no idea where it was coming from or what its source was. I just knew that I didn't like it and it was difficult to sleep. So eventually I had to surrender to it and wake up, get up out of bed, go through the bedrooms, went down to the kitchen, even down into the basement. It was everywhere, but I had no idea where it was coming from. And then I opened the door to my garage. It was thick it like almost knocked me back because it was so intense. And as I was going through the garage, I came to the door that opens to the shed that's attached to our garage. And I'm only half awake at this point, but it was almost as though I could see the vapor in the air. Now, I don't know how the skunk got in or or why it decided to spray, but as it sought refuge in my house, My family and I sought refuge in another house the next night. It was that bad. Our clothes, our cars, every room of our house was just infused with this intense smell. It's the power of an aroma. Did you know that God's word calls the lives of Christ followers a kind of aroma, that we ourselves are an aroma, not like that of a skunk, but one that's far more powerful, one that is of eternal consequence. Well, we are continuing in in our series today called Walk in the Way. And in this series, we're looking at the ways or the habits that Christians have committed themselves to across the centuries. As Christ followers, there are certain things that we give ourselves over to. We have looked at, for example, the authority of scripture, how God's word is something that enriches our lives as we learn it, as we read it, as we memorize it and meditate on it. Prayer is another example of a practice that nourishes our souls. Prayer is something that aligns our hearts with God's heart. But here's the thing. You might spend a lot of time in God's word. You might memorize it and meditate on it. And your neighbors may have no idea that you're doing it. You may spend significant amounts of time and commit yourself to prayer, but your colleagues at work may be completely unaware of it. But the practice that we're looking at today is one that necessarily has a public face to it. Back in Acts 1.8, Jesus' final words to his disciples are recorded as being, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking these words to his eyewitnesses. These are people who walked with him, who stood in his shadow, who heard his teaching, who saw his miracles and were there with him in his resurrected form. 
And their task was to go to all the world to proclaim the gospel, to testify to the things that they had seen and witnessed firsthand and tell others about them. Now, you and I are not eyewitnesses in the same way that they were, but we are witnesses. We have had a a firsthand kind of experience with the power of God through God's spirit. We know what it's like to have a life that's been touched and even transformed by what God has accomplished through Christ. But here's the thing, let's be honest. When we talk about witnessing, whether we call it evangelism or whether we talk about sharing our faith or talking about the gospel message, it can be really, really intimidating. We might wish that there were like this special class of Christians, maybe people with a special gift and that they can be the ones who are the witnesses while we just watch them and cheer them on. But God has called all of us to participate in this task of being a witness. And if you're like me, maybe your mind immediately goes to the skunk. You think, if, I, if I'm like that, if I'm witnessing, people are going to see me coming and they're going to want to go the other way. They're going to want me to be out of their lives, not disturbing what they've been doing. In fact, people may even hate me because I am a witness. Well, to the extent that that's true of you, that you can relate to that, The question we might want to ask ourselves today then is where does the confidence come from to be a witness? Where does that confidence come from to be able to be a witness? And to see the answer to that, we're going to look at the life of maybe the greatest witness of all of Christian history, none other than the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul had a lot of examples of witnessing that we could look to, but we're going to look specifically at his relationship with the church in the city of Corinth. Before we get there though, let's just say a word of prayer. Father, we commit this time to you. We ask for your favor on it. And Lord, where we lack the courage and the confidence to witness, I pray that you would speak to us today. I pray that this would be a time in these next few moments together, Father, where you would reveal how we can have confidence to be who you've called us to be, to walk in the way in this area of life. So God, we, we expect this and we pray for this now by faith and in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to open our Bibles today to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 14. So you can go ahead and turn there or scroll there. Before we get there, though, what you should know about the Apostle Paul and his relationship with the Corinthian church is that it was not something that was necessarily full of pleasant memories. He's not writing this book to reminisce about the good old days, the good times that they've had together, the happy moments. Rather, he's actually having to defend himself. He's having to talk about why he's made certain decisions and why they maybe have been disappointed in him and and where he's called them to have greater maturity in the Christian faith. It was a strained relationship. But in the midst of those difficulties, in the midst of those trials, Paul is able to find confidence. He's able to find something that he can even praise God for. And we see it now as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what Paul says. But thanks be to God, who in Christ Jesus always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
So in spite of the difficulties, in spite of the hard circumstances and the, the trouble in the relationship that Paul's had with the Corinthians, he's able to say, but thanks be to God. But he's talking about this thing called a triumphal procession. A triumphal procession is a strange term to us, but to his listeners, they would have known immediately what he was talking about. A triumphal procession is a Roman military victory parade. This is a celebration that would take place following a Roman conquest. So the image here is one of a Roman military commander standing tall and proud in his chariot. And around him are dancers and musicians who are celebrating with him. Along the way are crowds of Roman citizens cheering them on, celebrating what has happened through this great military conquest. And immediately in front of the chariot, in this position of great importance, are people carrying incense. They are spreading this aroma as an offering to the gods, thanking the gods for this victory that they have brought about on Rome's behalf. So victory in this case, not only has a sight, it doesn't only have a sound, but it even has a smell. And Paul says, he takes this image of this common thing that was true in their day. And he says, the gospel is like that for us. Paul says, we are not just bystanders looking at this parade, but we are actually participants. It's not a, a Roman general who's the center of attention, but it's actually Christ. Christ has accomplished a great victory worth celebrating. And Paul sees his life and the life of all Christians as one of spreading the fragrance of this aroma wherever he goes. Whether he's in Jerusalem or Rome or Athens or Corinth or the region of Galatia or Philippi, everywhere Paul goes, the gospel or the fragrance of the gospel goes with him. It's what he sees his life purpose to be. And it's what we should see our life's purpose to be as well but let's be truthful about this. When we look around, does it feel like we are part of a triumphal procession? When you read the headlines or when you check out your news feed, when you think about our culture, or the political situation, you think about the racial tension in our country, does it feel like we are all a part of this great triumphal procession? See, as we think back to the question of where does the confidence come from to be able to be a witness, the first thing we should see here is that we have to take a delight in the gospel itself. And this is where we need each other because the messages we receive on a daily and weekly, even more like an hourly basis are messages that barrage us with bad news. We can feel inundated with these reasons to feel negative and down about the state of reality when in actuality, God has accomplished something far greater than any circumstance in our lives. God has done something through Christ that no circumstance can touch. It's the gospel message that we take our delight in, but we need each other to remind each other of this ultimate truth we can forget what's actually real and true about our universe, about our world, about all of history. So we need each other in community with each other in order to be able to truly take delight in the gospel. It's the starting point for our source of confidence. There's a woman named Rebecca Pippert who wrote a book a while back called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. She recently wrote a follow-up book called Stay Salt, 
She says this, the one thing that unites all Christians now and throughout history is our joyful assurance that the greatest thing that ever happened on our planet is the birth, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is quite simply the best news ever. Amen? The message of the gospel is the greatest news ever. But then she asked this question. Maybe you can even anticipate it coming. She says, if this is so, why do so many Christians struggle to share the glorious news of the gospel? I can tell you, I've read that quote maybe over a dozen times. And every time I read it, it is personally convicting for me. One thing you should know about me is that I struggle to serve as a witness, to be a witness. I find it really difficult to enter into conversations with other people about faith. It's not natural for me. It's not something that I just do automatically. Maybe you can relate to that. But as I think about why is that the case? Why do I find it so hard if the gospel is so good? And the answer really distills down to one word. It's fear. But fear is a tremendously big topic. So let's break it up a little bit and look specifically maybe at one category of it, a fear of rejection. A fear of rejection is the idea of, oh no, what if I share my faith with them or talk to them about the gospel and they just laugh at me? What if they say no? What if they, they don't even want to see me anymore because they just think I'm talking foolishness? It's a fear of rejection. Well, maybe you've even experienced people who have these kinds of responses to the gospel when you've tried to share it with them or they've told you about other experiences they've had. Author Randy Newman tells the story of a 17-year-old student who was asked by a friend about his own religious beliefs and his explanation included this. You know, I think that I believe in no religion. There's absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. All religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention. Now, that's a 17-year-old student, but maybe you have a neighbor or a family member or a coworker who has that same kind of response. So what do we do with this idea of a fear of rejection? How should we think about that? Well, to get the answer, let's look back at the text. Let's look at what Paul has to say now verses 15 and 16, he says this, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So Paul is saying that there is a single aroma. There's an aroma of Christ that some accept and that some reject. I was reading an article recently it talks about the world's most expensive perfume called Imperial Majesty, priced at a mere $2,355 per ounce. If that's a bit steep for you, you could opt for a lesser concoction that was only $1,800. As the article explains, the more you pay, the less likely you are to come across someone else wearing the same spray. See, the idea is who would want to be caught smelling the same as somebody else? We can take that mindset to the gospel, though. And as we think about our conversations we might have with people, we might think, well, maybe I can make the fragrance of the gospel more appealing. Maybe I should minimize the, 
the exclusive nature of Christ or the problem of sin or a final judgment or even the concept of hell. Maybe if I just diminish those, then the fragrance will be more appealing to people and more likely to be accepted by more people. But of course, that's not the true fragrance of the gospel then. That's a false gospel. And we can't spread that kind of a fragrance. Paul says that there's one fragrance that is received two very different ways. See, in the triumphal procession, there were two very different crowds of people. On the one hand, there were people who had been set free by the Roman conquest. They were slaves of the area that was taken over now by Rome's victory. They had been set free. They were now released from their captivity. They'd been given a new life. For them, the aroma of the gospel is life-giving. The aroma of the fragrance is life-giving. There's another crowd of people though. And that crowd of people are, are people who Rome fought against. They had been overcome and were now captured. For them, the aroma is the smell of death because at a pinnacle moment in that triumphal procession, they would often be publicly executed. That aroma was the smell of death. So as we think about the gospel message, as we think about being a witness, we must understand there's, there's a single aroma that can be, be received one of two ways. And whether it's accepted or rejected, both can be indicators of a faithful witness. But re- whatever the outcome, when somebody accepts the gospel as a pleasing aroma, it is a supernatural experience. It's out of our hands. See, that's where our confidence comes from. When we think about the fear of rejection, we have to keep in mind that the outcome is out of our hands. The outcome is in God's hands. It's also helpful for us if we think about the reality that even though we might have an interaction with somebody, a single conversation, or maybe a couple of conversations, we are actually stepping into a process that God is using in some cases, to draw people to himself. The New Testament uses a couple of different metaphors. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus calls his disciples, he calls Peter and his brother Andrew, and he says, come after me and I will make you fishers of men. In Matthew 13, he uses the illustration of a sower scattering seed to talk about the different responses people have to the gospel message or the good news of the kingdom. In both cases, fishing and farming are processes. You're not only fishing when you're pulling in the net. You're not only farming when you're bringing in the harvest. You're fishing when you're mending the nets. You're fishing when you're casting them back out. You're farming when you're planting, when you're plowing, when you're watering. We might be at a step in the process that God is using to draw somebody to himself. And we may never see that final result. We enter into that process though. And Paul actually knew this himself firsthand. In a previous letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Paul recognizes that he had one role in the lives of the Corinthians when they came to faith. This other man, Apollos, had another role, but God was the one who made it all happen. God is the one who drew the Corinthians to himself. Remember the 17-year-old student I told you about a couple minutes ago? The one who said that all religions are mythologies and of them Christianity isn't even the best? I am so grateful that people around that man 
continued to spread the fragrance of the aroma of Christ into his life. Because about 15 years later, when that man was now 31 years old, he came to faith. And that man was C.S. Lewis, who has impacted my life and maybe yours as well. He's one of the greatest witnesses of the 20th century. It's an amazing example of how God brings people through a process and the rejection that we experience today may just be one step along the way that God uses to bring that person to faith ultimately. So when we think about the fear of rejection, we have to keep in mind this idea that the result is out of our hands. It's actually in God's. But that's not the only category of fear that I have to deal with. There's also another kind that's worthwhile to look at, and it's called the fear of rejection. Excuse me. It's called the fear of inadequacy. The fear of inadequacy says, well, I'm not smart enough to talk to this person. What if they say, what if they ask me a question and I just don't know the answer? What do I do then? Who am I to have such an important, life-changing, even eternally significant conversation with somebody? It's the fear of inadequacy. To figure out what we should think about this, let's look at the last part of verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul asks this question. He says, who is sufficient for these things? Paul seems to know exactly the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about. Who is sufficient for these things? And down in chapter 3, in verse 4, he answers the question. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent. See, Paul knows that the competency that he longs for as well is not something that's derived from within himself. It's not an internal thing. It actually comes from God. Again, Rebecca Pippert and her husband describe this encounter that they often have at conferences when they're talking to people about how to be witnesses. She says this, people come up to us during a conference looking as if they are about to confess their darkest secret, something they hope no one will ever discover. And they say, I really want to share my faith, but I just can't. Why can't you? We ask because they say, looking around, hoping no one is listening. I just don't know enough. I am not a perfect example of a Christian. And what if I offend them? What if I can't answer their questions? The bottom line is I can't share my faith because I'm so inadequate. Well, of course you're inadequate, we answer. We're all inadequate. All of us are completely dependent upon God. And isn't it freeing to know there's no shame in depending on God? You see, if we examine this idea of a fear of inadequacy, I think what's at the root of it is this desire to be self-sufficient. We want to be adequate on our own, even apart from God sometimes, and even in the area of ministry. We want to minister out of our own strength and our own ability, thinking that that is sufficient. We don't want to be in a place where we have to rely on God to come through. Paul knew this well. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul said this, talking about a previous visit he had made to these people. He said, and I, when I came to you, brothers, 
I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, as Randy Newman puts it, we have to learn that our confidence should not be in our confidence. Our confidence should actually be in God. And that as we feel and experience the weakness and sense of inadequacy that we have inside of us, that that causes us to rely even more deeply on God to provide for us in the moment, in the conversations we have. So as we think about this fear of inadequacy, one thing we should keep in mind is that God is the one who makes us competent. You put it all together then, you can see that our confidence comes from a personal delight in the gospel, but also just knowing that our competence comes from him and that the result is in his hands. It's not up to us to determine the outcome. It's up to us to be the ones who spread the fragrance of the aroma of the knowledge of Christ wherever we go. So what does this mean in your life right now? Who do you know who does not yet know Christ? Just think about somebody right now. What would it look like for you to take a step of faith, to be somebody who you say with open hands to the Lord, God, use me, use me as somebody to sp- who will spread the fragrance of the aroma of the knowledge of Christ in their life. I would encourage you to begin praying for that person if you haven't already. And then watch and see what God does to give you opportunities, recognizing that the outcome of a conversation that you have with that person is not up to you. The outcome is up to God. Recognizing that even the content of that conversation is not something that you necessarily are up are dependent on, but you're actually relying on God to provide you with the competence you need in the moment. The result is in God's hands. The competence to witness is in God's hands as well. He is the one who provides us with what we need in the moment. Another thing we can do simply is just to pray, God, would you put people into my life who you are already leading to you? And would you use me to be able to be a witness to them? And as we do this, may we do it with the attitude that Paul exhibits at the start of this passage. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Would you pray? Father, We are so thankful for the way that you have called us to witness, the way that you have called us to be useful to you as your gospel message advances throughout the world. Lord, who are we to be used in this way? I pray that we would delight in the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that this task that you have given us is a task that you are with us in all through. And Father, that that we would just look to you and keep our eyes on you, being faithful to spread the fragrance wherever we go. And God, we trust that you will bring about the result that brings you glory 
And God, we look forward to how even after this message now that you will create new opportunities in our lives to spread that fragrance wherever we go. And we pray this all now in your powerful name. Amen. Amen.